Well, greetings in the name of Jesus. Uh, I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, Pastor Eddie here on Rooftop Herald. Yes, this is going to be our conversations uh, that we're going to be having almost every week, um, especially on, on Fridays or Sundays, but at least once a week. So, yeah, bless you. Uh, for joining through on this uh, podcast and uh, please share it with others in Jesus name yes what I want to talk about today is um, uh, it's very simple actually I want to talk to you concerning the inerrancy of scripture Uh, I want to talk to you concerning the infallibility of scripture you know Uh, 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 the Bible says that um, uh, all scripture is breathed by God and it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction unto righteousness. Alright, I want us to focus on that verse. The first thing that I want us to note on that verse is the word inspiration. Alright, um, normally when we think about, um, you know, inspiration, um, we actually imagine the writers of the scripture uh, being in spirit, you know, uh, they are there in the spirit. Some of us even imagine, imagine them speaking in tongues and having a piece of paper and uh, and a pencil, you know, uh, writing down the thoughts uh, of uh, God. But I want to put it to you to say that uh, actually biblical inspiration uh, is not actually referring to the writer, all right? When you say the inspired writer, we're not actually looking at the man we are actually looking at the word itself to say now it is god breathed remember that some of these um, letters or biblical um, books and chapters were actually um, uh, written by different uh, types of uh, writers you know Um, but there's only one author you know as we commonly know that the spirit is the author of all scripture but uh, different writers like i said so for instance in the case of jeremiah we have a guy called baruch who was a scribe you know jotting down everything that uh, uh, jeremiah will actually say or prophesy um in that particular time you see so basically we when we talk about inspiration my emphasis is that uh, we need to understand that it is the word of god that is actually inspired not necessarily the prophet or the writer of that particular letter. For instance, the book of um, Romans. The book of Romans um, is an inspired book. Yes, we believe that New Testament book. And uh, we know that um, the person who wrote the book of uh, Romans is not necessarily Paul, even though these are the words of Paul, but it was not his handwriting. He's not the one that actually wrote the letter. You know, you find it in the last chapter of the book of uh, Romans, you see. So my emphasis today, I just want to emphasize the fact that uh, when we talk about inspiration, we are referring to the word itself to say now it is inspired. It is full of uh, um, uh, the spirit of God. It is God who has breathed upon that word than the, the, the writers, than the authors, you know. That's what I'm trying to put right there. That's the first point about inspiration. And another thing that I want us to balance as well is the issue of, um, you know, um, the difference. There's a slight difference between um, um, 
inerrancy and infallibility you know uh, these are two words that we mainly use in defense of our faith and in defense of the scriptures to say now that the word of god is inerrant meaning it is without fault and it is also infallible meaning you can put your trust and put your head down and concerning the word of god he will save you or it will save you you see that's what we are referring to however i need you to note that since these are two different terms and yet having almost the same context uh, it's it is important to know that it is not actually a, a same term if it was the same term it was supposed to be one word but now it's two different words and uh, since it's two different words well they should have two different meanings even though contextually they mean almost the same thing so that when we present the truth of god we may understand um, to a certain extent what we mean when we say that the word of god or the scriptures the teragramat um they they are inerrant or infallible right now the word inerrant uh, simply tells us that the word of god is without error you know it is without error and then the word infallibility or infallible refers to uh, a meaning to say now the word of god is incapable of error meaning it is incapable of making mistakes you see yeah it's important for us to use this term uh, carefully so because when it comes to the holy scriptures and how the bible was canonized and how the bible got to a place where it was handed over to your hand it was actually a very long procedure and it took a lot of uh, energy and study and time and years that were invested for that word uh, to be handed over in your language or in another translation you see yeah as we all know for instance i'm just gonna be doing an overview actually it's not the full uh, teaching on inerrancy but uh, it's very much important for us to remember that um, uh, you know the procedure like i said when it comes to canonizations there were a lot of standards that were set uh, for one to have a copy uh, of one particular letter as a canonized version and then mind you from that procedure you still had uh, a generation that will want that in a particular language because it's not all of us who are speaking hebrew and greek so the word of god and the holy scriptures they had to go through uh, what you call transliteration or translations you know which is also another subject for another day but what i'm trying to show you is the fact that um you know as as the years went by you know as as the years went by as time went by cultures evolved you know they evolved and after evolving obviously the language will change when the culture changes the language changes for instance if you are to speak to apostle paul today and talk to him about sonship there was no term like sonship in his days um you know there's there's a there are a lot of terms that have been coined even within the christendom that did not exist at that particular time when these letters were written and stuff like that so what do you see here we we see the evolving of a culture that now gives birth to a new language okay or new languages you see in the beginning or in ancient times there were no zulus you know but today we do have um the bible in a zulu version you see 
yeah so the whole um the whole issue here it's about um making sure that even as we do these transliterations and translations we don't fall into the trap of uh, you know rendering the word of god as narrant you know as as fallible you know and uh, the writers they did try by all means even though there are other scriptures that seem to be contradictory you know simply because where maybe there was no term to be used um, in that particular time to maybe cover up what the Greek um, really meant or what the Hebrew uh, writer really meant when he has put his point across. But that should not render uh, the the translator to to be in a place of infallibility and inerrancy. That is my whole point. So you can see from what I've just presented to you now that um, we do have errors because of the translations and the transliterations but necessarily it's not an an error per se because that will render the word of god as narrant that is why we now need a term like um, infallibility which covers now and mothers and fathers and and protects uh, the word of God to be inerrant because the word infallibility simply means that it is incapable of making mistakes. So when we find scriptures that seem to be contradictory or when we find scriptures to have, uh, you know, grammatical errors, uh, grammatical structure of words that are not in a perfect shape to what the Hebrew writer or the Greek writer meant, Therefore, we need to now come to a place where we remember the infallibility of Scripture, that it is not actually the Scriptures that are, are in error, it is the writer. So we need to find out where did they err as they were translating or copying these Holy Scriptures. So the whole procedure, um, it it it's actually calls us, it calls us for uh, studying the Word of God. That is why the Bible says, study to show yourself approved the workman who correctly divides the word of truth you see so that is where studying comes in i can make a very simple example uh, uh, in the book of samuel and the book of chronicles the book of chronicles actually tells us that uh, jesse had seven sons and yet the book of samuel first samuel tells us that jesse had eight sons so if you are somebody who is not uh, studied the infallibility of scripture uh, to cover the narrancy of scripture you'll end up thinking that the bible is contradicting itself so i hope these teachings are going to be much more interesting and if you are interested please let me know so that maybe i can add you on the group uh, of those people that will be part of this uh, um, rooftop herald i'm gonna call it a rooftop herald and as time goes by of course we will load this online and facebook and stuff like that but yeah god bless you I love you so much. I'll hear from you. Amen. Uh, kingdom greetings in the most wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Uh, this is Pastor Eddie uh, from Christ Revealed Tabernacle, and this is our rooftop herald sessions where we discuss the mystery of Christ the mystery that has been now revealed unto us the Bible says that uh, uh, the mystery that has been hidden from ages and generations 
has now been revealed unto us and God will let us know what are these mysteries or who is this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So yeah, yeah, welcome to this session. I hope you enjoyed a snack view on inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture on the previous uh, uh, session that I did. Yeah, so this is going to be a continuation uh, of you know that particular subject and I hope it's going to be a blessing. Look, I've already received text and messages, uh, you know, brethren engaging me to say now, why would I choose to do such uh, difficult topics? Uh, these topics are for fathers and those that have matured in the faith and stuff like that. I was really discouraged. However, my response uh, to some of these brethren was that um, uh, it's not that I think I'm more knowledgeable or more powerful or anything like that. It's just me being zealous, first of all, to know and to discover more truth, you know, to unravel and to uncap. Uh, that which God has kept for us in this generation. So, for instance, when the Bible says that uh, 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 defend the gospel in the book of Jude, it was not only referring to the people who are smart or referring to people who are eloquent or referring to people who are mature and who are fathers in the faith. It's speaking to everybody. The Bible says that uh, study to show yourself approved a workman who correctly divides the word of truth. And that scripture is not a scripture for the pastors. I must also emphasize on that. That scripture talks to the whole body of Christ. Studying the word uh, is actually a command in scripture. It's a command. We must study the word. Uh, the Bible says that actually the word study, if you read it in Greek, it, it's the word spudazo, where you find the word speed. Okay? Uh, speed, velocity. Basically, when you are a church that uh, does not study, you you become very much stagnant in your call with God and in your journey with God, right? The knowledge is actually very much important in our time. The Bible says that uh, by wisdom is how a house is built and uh, with understanding it is established, but with knowledge it is um, uh, filled with rare furniture, meaning knowledge is like furniture, okay? And wisdom is like a house. So understanding it is the, you know, it fortifies the house. But knowledge is like having a furniture, which is very much important. Uh, be still and know that I am God. Okay. The people who know they are God, knowledge, know their God shall do exploit. Habakkuk 2.14, the Bible says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas. Uh, it's not filled with uh, the glory. It's filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. We're not going to be like Moses. When we experience the glory this time, we are not going to cover our faces uh, because this glory is more glorious than that of Moses because that of Moses is the glory that is fading away. So we need to study basics. It's We need to study, brethren. We need to uh, find a way to study the word. Uh, I always tell people that, you know, theology, uh, there's nothing wrong with theology. I mean, everybody, given a chance, I would also advise anybody to go and study theology because theology is the study of the doctrine of God. You see, the doctrine of God is not theology. 
Okay, so when we make means to study the doctrine of God, then we are doing theology. So everybody is commanded to study the doctrine of God, whether through theology or individually. But I think there's just a very slight difference between somebody who's studying the word of God on his, on his own and somebody who has went to school to be taught on certain principles and guidelines on how to achieve, you know, knowledge in terms of the doctrine of God, that is theology. So um, basically we are commanded, whether you want to go to school or not, we have to study the doctrine of the scriptures, which is the doctrine of Christ, which is the doctrine of the Spirit and the doctrine of the Father, the whole uh, Trinitarian community okay is is actually mentioned or must be evident in our study of uh, the doctrine of god or the doctrine of the scriptures or the doctrine of christ yeah so i don't know why i had to say that but anyway um, yeah we are going to do a very interesting subject on inerrancy uh, i have decided to pick up uh, one or actually two verses uh, that most of the apologetics uh, who are anti-Christian are using against Christianity to prove that the scriptures are actually narrant or to have error, okay? And that is the subject on the sons of Jesse, okay? Uh, how many sons did Jesse have? You know, if you can ask this question and you get to read these two scriptures, you'll see where the core or the bone of contention is because number one you must remember that these are the scriptures of the living god okay and they are both inspired if we believe in second timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where the bible says that all scripture is inspired by god all means all so first chronicles and first samuel they are both inspired by the spirit of god and they are good for doctrine reproof uh, correction and instruction unto righteousness so which one must we believe uh, between these two when the bible claims that uh, jesse had eight sons and the other scripture says jesse had seven sons and uh, uh, david was the last born of the uh, the eighth son and the chronicles will say he was the seventh son so which one must we believe if these are two scriptures that seem to be contradictory are they not proving the bible to be fallible or to be narrant even if we claim as christians to say that our scripture the tierra grammata the holy scriptures they are infallible and inerrant are we only claiming uh, that these or these scriptures are, are such you know so yeah that is uh, actually the 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 core of the issue on those two verses so we're going to entertain those two verses but before we do that uh, i want us to understand few things because we are going to you see for one to come to a place of uh, making a sound conclusion or a sound presentation on any other biblical matter you uh, should have went through a number of things like studying both scriptures and doing a serious historical account on those two books uh, so that you can have an plausible you know approach and uh, presentation uh, that is satisfactory to the listener and even to the ones who are anti-christian okay because remember we are defending the gospel 
when we do such contradicting scriptures, we're trying to prove to the world that the scriptures, they are still inerrant, even if they have such seemingly contradictive uh, scriptures. So, yeah, we, we're going to do, I'm not going to do everything, of course, because of time, we can't have a full class here on, on the historical account of these two books. But the nuggets that I've picked up already, I think they are good enough uh, for us to have our personal views, uh, you know, yeah, on, on this particular matter. Now, I need you to note as well, you know, as a Christian, you must also come to an understanding that your, your understanding of scriptures comes in three levels, okay? The first level of your understanding is the fact that your Bible is literal. So there's a natural understanding of the verse. Your Bible was written uh, by God through people. So it has used a language that is understood by people. All right. So there's a natural understanding of scripture. The second level of understanding of your scripture will be your, uh, your moral understanding. Now, moral understanding... Uh, it suggests to us that these scriptures, they are not like a newspaper or a novel. There is an expectation to live up to. You know, there's an expectation that God has even as we read and we engage in such scriptures. Okay. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the, uh, the expectation or the level of uh, morality. Okay, which is now your holiness and righteousness. We don't read scriptures just to read them. We read them so that God can change and regenerate our spirit to become moral and to become holy and righteous unto him. So the moral understanding of uh, scripture brings us to a place where we now repent because of what God has said. The Bible says when Nehemiah read the law, uh, in many cases actually when they read the law, uh, people repented and they had to repent just by reading uh, you know the holy scriptures because the primary purpose of your bible is not for us is not for you to preach it okay the primary purpose of scripture is for you to read it and after reading it because of the result of change and conviction and the moral standards and the cry uh, of the lord within you then you'll be able to teach and to uh, preach to others. So moral understanding is the next level of your understanding. But the last and ultimate understanding of your Bible is called spiritual understanding. Now, your spiritual understanding helps you to navigate, okay, um, to navigate uh, your your views of scripture from the old to the new. I can make an example. From the Old Testament, we have uh, uh, we have uh, the natural Israel, which is now in the New Testament has become the supernatural Israel, which is the church. Okay, the Bible talks about the natural rock uh, in the book of Exodus where they drank or that they drank from in the wilderness. And then the book of Hebrews will say that natural rock was actually Christ. So there's a transition of moving from the natural things to the supernatural things. All right. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 is first the natural, then the spiritual things. So the spiritual understanding helps you to uh, understand the spiritual language of the Bible. When the Bible is metaphoric to say now the Lord is my rock. Okay, we understand that he has used the language of typology and therefore referring to the attributes of the rock 
uh, that is who the Lord is to that particular writer and stuff like that. So there's a spiritual language, there's a spiritual um, phrases that you must learn also, you know, on the scriptures. That brings us to uh, an understanding, actually, ultimately to, to, to the new covenant, to understand that uh, we have moved from glory to glory. And what do I mean by that? When the Bible says we have moved from glory to glory, is not talking about you know some atmospheres and some electric atmosphere in a church where people are rolling down and stuff like that moving from glory to glory refers to the um, the new covenant moving from the old covenant to the new covenant moving from the covenant of moses to the covenant of jesus christ that is moving from glory to glory moving from the law uh, to the the covenant of uh, grace and truth you know it's very important for us to to note that you'll find that in second corinthians chapter number seven uh, paul is is really dealing with such things from that chapter all right so yes i want us to get into business um you know Yes, I think we have laid a, a good foundation, but also remember that the Bible carries final authority, okay? We don't preach these scriptures uh, with doubt, okay? Uh, our gospel is actually a sure foundation. So what do I uh, mean by that? Um, I mean to say that uh, the scriptures have final authority. So even if perhaps we don't have a final answer on certain things or we don't have a definite answer on certain things that does not mean that the answer is not there okay it simply means now that it's our duty to dig more and to understand more on scripture and by the grace of god and by the spirit of god if we have found grace in his eyes he shall reveal and give us the relevant answers. So for now, let's entertain what we can. Let's entertain what the Spirit has already revealed to the church. You see, we also don't preach this word, Bazalwane, by, um, or rather without recognizing the law uh, of contradiction. That's what we call the law of contradiction. Okay, the law of contradiction, Jesus actually mentions it in the book of Matthew, and he says that a kingdom or a house that is divided against itself will never stand. So we must come to an understanding that um, whatever subject that we touch on, we must come to the same understanding. There's no way that God can have two views on the same subject. For instance, if God has to speak to us concerning homosexuality, as the church, we cannot have two views about that and claiming that that's what the scriptures are presenting. God is not double-minded. God is not like a coin. He does not have two sides. Truth does not have two sides. Uh, truth is like fire. God is like a consuming fire. He only has one purpose. He scorches, he burns. So if we have a, a subject that is sensitive or controversial or whatever, difficult, that does not mean now that we have a right to, uh, to claim that scriptures uh, have two views on that particular matter, whether it's tithing, homosexuality, racism, divorce, all of these things, we must come to a place where we agree with the view of the scriptures. So it is us people and men 
who are actually claiming that truth has two sides but to tell you the truth uh, truth does not have two sides there's only one side of the truth and we must all come to the knowledge the purpose of the fivefold ministry first um, I mean Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 up to 13 it gives you the fact that we must come to the same knowledge so we can be on the same knowledge as long as we entertain um, the, the, the two views method on particular subjects nonetheless it's a story for another day I want us to entertain these uh, two scriptures and I'll give you my view and that will be it all right now let's read the scripture let's read the, the scripture. chats first Samuel chapter number 17 verse number 12 it reads as follows now david was the son of the ephratite of bethlehem judah whose name was jesse and he had eight sons and the men went among men from an old man in the days of saul verse number 13 is also important it says and the three eldest sons of jesse went and followed saul to the battle please note that one the the, the first three sons of jesse they followed saul to the battle and the names of the three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn and the next one was Abinadab and the third one was Shama all right now let us read first uh, chronicles chapter number 2 verse number 13 it says Jesse begot Eliab his firstborn and Abinadab the second Shamia the third so uh, there is a highlight there is something that you must note there it counts the third born as Shamia and yet uh, on first Samuel it says Shama okay and then it says Nathaniel the fourth Radai the fifth Ozem the sixth and David the seventh so this one counts David to be the seventh son and it counts the third son to be Shamay or Shamia Shamia instead of Shama now, the first thing that you must ask yourself is, is Shama and Shamia the same person or not? All right. Those are another, it's another question that you must also entertain. All right. And this scripture here in 1 Chronicles 2, uh, 13 claims that, um, uh, you know, David or Jesse had seven, son, uh, seven sons and David was the seventh son. All right. So now here's my my presentation on 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 this subject and i know it is a it is a subject that has been there for some time for many years and many uh, church fathers and other scholars of the word have rendered their dissertations on this their presentation they've written books about it on apologetics and stuff like that however i am also going to give you my view on this particular uh, issue of the sons of Jesse, and I hope it will make sense. Now, these two books, the book of First Samuel and the book of um, Chronicles, they are both historical accounts. That's that's what you must understand. They are both historical accounts, and that also including the book of Kings, because most of the stories that are shared from Chronicles, uh, Samuel, they are also found in the book of Kings. Okay, so these three books they are considered or two. They are classified under the, the historical accounts of scripture. Now, 
those of you who love hermeneutics and who are the scholars of the word, they will understand that the purpose of doing the historical account on a verse is not for us to actually retrieve or to to understand uh, specific times. It does not, the reason for us to do a historical account is not for us to look for the accuracy as far as times and dates are concerned. Okay, the purpose of doing a historical account is for us to understand that a particular event has actually taken place, irregardless of times, because uh, the historical accounts actually differ. You can get the same account of a particular event, but that is recorded on different times. See, so the purpose of doing history in the verse is not for you to have or to discover the time or the specific time, should I say accurate, to be accurate or to have accuracy as far as times and dates are concerned, all right? Um, if you were to understand also, for instance, let me just amplify it a bit, you know, when you read the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is both prophetic, is also a historical account, okay, in a sense that it's giving us a history of humankind, where, of humankind, where human beings are coming from and stuff like that. And then as you read further, you'll find that there were daughters of men of which we don't know where they are coming from and stuff like that. And uh, the other family of Adam, that is not recorded. So by so saying, I'm trying to highlight to you that the purpose of doing historical account like I said, it has nothing to do with uh, the accuracy in terms of dates and numbers, but it has to do with uh, the tracing of a seed of a woman, okay, which is now the Messiah. So the purpose of having a historical account in your uh, presentation is so that it can be evident to the next person or a listener or your audience to say now, you have quoted people that have actually carried the seed of the Messiah. So both of these books, actually all the historical accounts in the Bible, the reason why they've given us these stories and uh, some of those stories they've been omitted and some of these stories they've been repeated, their purpose is to emphasize on the trace, uh, the tracing of the seed of a woman, which is the Messiah who is also Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that is the whole purpose of doing the historical account. All right. Now, these two books, uh, of course, if you want to understand the authorship or rather the authority of scripture, if we say that the, the scriptures carry final authority and we suggest that or we put it on the table to say everybody is subject to the word, apostles, prophets, teachers, uh, everybody, even the Pope, is subject to the word. There's no one above the word. The word carries fina the final authority. We are trying to tell you that we actually understand the authorship of Scripture. For us to find out how powerful or the authority of Scripture uh, is easily discoverable when you understand the authorship of Scripture. So these two words, they share a suffix. Most of you know that authority and authorship. Alright, so for us to understand the authority of scripture on these two books, the book of Samuel and the book of uh, First Chronicles, we need to trace now how the book was canonized. How did it come and how did it become part of these 66 books? Alright, 
uh, because our, father, our forefathers saw it fit that it may add to the number of scriptures that could edify the church. And by the way, the Old Testament is uh, one book that is actually less um, um, attacked when it comes to its authority because most of the people, like the Jews, uh, they believe in that book and they have more on the historical account as far as scriptures are concerned, even though there's no uh, manuscripts or the main original uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament. The, the book of Genesis is the one that is mainly attacked uh, by the anti-Christian apologetics because of course it presents God to be the source of everything, how the world began and so forth. So the most attacked book in the Old Testament is the book of Genesis. But we are not there uh, for today. I don't know why I'm deviating, but I hope it's worth it. So let me just do a recap. Um, on these two uh, books okay i'm just gonna give you nuggets actually and then get to the main point you see the book of first samuel we are not even sure who's the writer of that particular book it's not written anywhere on history but most of the scholars they believe that the book of first samuel was written uh, by samuel with the help of nathan the prophet and god the prophet to an extent whereby uh, some of the scholars believe that it was also david that did a record on this particular book however bazalan however however it is a fact that the records that were done on this book, they actually revealed events that were happening before, before the captivity of Babylon. There are two main captivities in your Bible. There are two main captivities in your Bible. It is the captivity of Egypt and the captivity of Babylon. All right, so this book entails the birth of Samuel, his childhood, his calling, and uh, him leading in the kingdom, him being the judge, okay? And yes, First Samuel is also a continuation of the book of Judges, by the way, because Samuel was a judge and a prophet at the same time. So that is a book that is actually uh, revealing to us uh, how the seed of the Messiah has actually traveled to one of our uh, forefathers of which the Jews they respect the most uh, which is called David his name is David okay so Samuel is a king maker he's the one that ordains um, the kings in this instance okay when he was born the word of God was ran stuff like that and there are a lot of things that we can also uh, question on this book for instance the tabernacle of moses number one now we have a woman that could go and pray on that tabernacle two that tabernacle in shiloh is now called the temple okay instead of the tabernacle you can tell actually that there is a a change of a language the person who has written this book has written it you know after some time after the temple of solomon has come to existence okay which of course is just an assumption or a thought you know towards that which was written uh, in connection with the temple in shiloh so anyways i'm not there man i'm not there so um yes the book of samuel is talking about his life uh, him ordaining the kings and stuff like that also the record of the priesthood that had fallen which is now Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phineas, and the corruption that happened in the temp uh, tabernacle or the temple, 
um, we also it also carries um, the significant part uh, of uh, David before he was elevated when he conquered Goliath, the greatest enemy of the Philistines. So it's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. It talks about the life of Samuel, the life of David, how the Ark of the Lord was captured and stuff like that. So it's a clear historical event or account of events that happened during the days of David before Solomon came to play. But these stories, as I said, they're also repeated in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. Now, the book of Chronicles is actually a supplementary book, okay? It also complements, yes, but it's a supplementary book in, in the sense that um, the, the book of Chronicles had many authors, okay? There were many authors that were actually involved in this book of Chronicles compared to the book of Samuel. So it is a collection of many writers. It's a collection of many writers who are writing about the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Okay, um, that is actually the authorship. And the, the person who actually um, has been claimed as the collector of these books, his name was uh, Ezra. Okay, Ezra the scribe, because uh, he is the only priest that existed even after the captivity of Babylon. So after 70 years, when the law was destroyed, when the language of the Hebrew text was messed up with when the priest would actually intermarried with other people who were not supposed to intermarry with Ezra was there to actually count and do census on all the people that came back uh, from captivity and stuff like that but above all he's the one that tried to restore the law okay to restore the law the laws of God so this book of um, Chronicles has many writers, many of the events that are actually recorded in the book of Chronicles. Um, they have entailed other credible prophets of which they were also writers. For instance, Isaiah's story is mentioned on 2 Chronicles 26-22. We have the story of Isaiah, I think is uh, 2 Chronicles 33 verse 19. We also have Jeremiah. Uh, been quoted there. The King Jehu uh, is also quoted. Another story that is very interesting is the uh, the story of Jehoshaphat and the story of Isaiah concerning Uzzah and Hezekiah. Okay, they are also found in Chronicles in the book of Isaiah. So the, you can see who this book is actually a compilation of uh, of books that were written <laughs> by other prophets who are credible. So. We can't really credit it to Ezra, but we thank God that he's the one that compiled uh, these writings, okay? Compiled these writings uh, in order to make it a book called Chronicles. It was called the Genesis in the ancient languages or the Hebrew Bible. So when you read the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible, is also rendered as Annas, which are the Genesis. It is the book of the Genesis, the history of the kingship of uh, Israel and Judah, okay? So basically on the historical account, there were public places where these books were actually kept. Uh, that is why it's called the Chronicles, okay? You, it was a section of the kings, the history of Judah, or the history of Israel and their events, what has transpired and stuff like that. So 
whichever way in which uh, Ezra had means to compile this book, we thank God for that because now we have an account that actually complements and supplement what has happened um, in the book of 1 Samuel or before captivity and during captivity. Uh, so yeah, we bless the Lord. So basically that is the historical account behind the writer or the writers of those two books. Now, the contention is here. Here's a big problem. Hmm? If you were to preach about the sons of Jesse and uh, you read First Samuel, it will tell you that Jesse had eight sons. When you read Chronicles chapter 2.13, it will tell you that Jesse had seven sons and it counts them. Okay. Now, there is a view uh, that is actually rendered and is commonly known by Christians uh, when it comes to uh, that part that contradicts in terms of how many sons did um, Jesse have. Okay. Normally, they say that since we have read in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 3, that the three eldest sons of Jesse, they followed Saul to the battle. Okay, and since they followed Saul to the battle, one of them, which is Shama, he's the one that died. Okay, because this is an event that happened before, before captivity, before the Babylonian captivity. Well, most of the scholars they want to believe that indeed that son called Shama, he's the one that died in the warfare during Saul's battles. Okay. Because now another uh, point to add, which confirms or rather supports what they say, that view is the fact that the book of Chronicles was written after captivity. It was only compiled by uh, Ezra and who was not actually there. So as they were doing, actually the book of Chronicles also, the, the, the one of its greatest contribution uh, in the faith or in, in the seed of a woman being the Messiah is that it contributes on the genealogies, okay? I know there's a scripture in First Timothy where Paul says that um, he's actually uh, telling Timothy to get rid of this. Um, um, he must not spend too much time on these worthless genealogies. Those worthless genealogies, they have nothing to do with these scriptural uh, genealogies. Okay. He was actually saying to them, okay, should I say this to you, that there's a difference between biblical genealogy and the other genealogies that are actually not bringing us to the Messiah. They are actually uh, worthless. Okay, That's what Paul was saying, because if genealogy is not important, the book of Matthew would have not been there uh, to give us the trace of the Messiah and the book of Luke as well. So the book of Chronicles is giving us the genealogy of Jesus Christ through David, okay, which is another interesting factor. So the reason why this is actually captured in the book of Chronicles, it is because the book of Chronicles carries genealogy. So as they were counting people, they realized that our uh, Jesse had seven sons instead of eight sons. Okay, so the question is, how are we going to present uh, this these scriptures to the audience or to our listeners in as they don't contradict which one makes more sense you see i want to submit to you that this uh, view it is plausible it's it's it makes sense however it is still an assumption 
that the son of David had actually died. Okay, because we don't have a record that says Shama died. Okay, it's only an assumption because of how genealogy um, was actually done in the book of Chronicles. If the son had died, he was not going to be counted as part of the genealogy and stuff like that. But however, as I said, it can only be an assumption. All right, so the question is, how then do we present uh, this matter to the people without sounding contradictory? Okay, now here's an answer, Bazalwani. You see, as soon as you understand, like I said, the authorship or the writing of a particular book, it is very easy for you to preach on these scriptures that seem to be contradictory. Okay, the scriptures, they are not inherent because they sound contradictory. Okay, we have to explain how the book was canonized. So therefore, if it's not recorded, why it is actually, um, or what happened to the other son of David, we must actually have that, that confidence to, to say to the church that we do not know what happened to the other son of David. And there's nothing wrong with that. That does not render uh, your presentation of the scriptures to be followable. As long as we accept and we see where the loophole is for, for, for other people who are anti-Christian to actually find the scriptures to be followable, we, we have done our part. I mean, if history does not tell us what happened to the son of Jesse, we do not know what has happened. So our responsibility as a preacher or as a teachers of the word is to bring it uh, to, to, to the table, is to bring all these things to the table to say such things might have happened, but we are not sure. And yet uh, also prove to them how the scriptures were canonized to say now the book of Chronicles was more on genealogies and the more we read on genealogies how genealogies were done a possibility is that this son because of his death he was not going to be recorded as part of the genealogies okay that's how we have seven sons and not eight sons secondly secondly the book of first Samuel was before captivity the wars happened, the wars of Saul happened at that time. They went to captivity after 70 years. Ezra compiled this book from different, um, different writers who were also credible writers like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hezekiah, and all of those people. They were sound writers, credible writers of the history of Israel. So if he says there are seven possibilities that one of the sons had died, this is a common view. What I'm saying is we must not impose, okay, and say now that, um, yeah, indeed, uh, the son died, okay? We are not sure. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying to you, our presentation must be clear to say, Bazalwan, we are not sure what happened to the other son of David. I hope this makes sense. <laughs> I'm expecting more of your comments and your views about it. Yeah, may God bless you and may he cause his face to shine upon you. Blessed be the name. Amen.